Happy Mother's Day. I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. Today we have a story about a mom. It's kind of a coincidence the way that it lays, you know, that it fell. We don't really plan like that. And so, you know what they say, if it's odd, it's God. <laughs> Please don't say that, okay? That's a bad saying. It's not true. I don't, I mean, so... In this case, we'll see. As you're turning to Mark chapter 7, and it's a story about a mom, and, you know, it's Mother's Day, so I just got a lot of thoughts about my own mom. If you've never met her, her name is Jo Jean, okay? For those of you who are looking for baby names, this is available. I've never, never heard of this name other than this, Jo Jean, okay? Southern-sounding name. Um, she was a school teacher my whole life, and uh, she then left that to start a nonprofit organization that is like a, a space for young people to come and have activities. Kind of think like the Three Mile Project, if you're familiar with that, uh, but an up north version. And she has worked uh, for a company or an org for the last eight years or so, just going around to schools raising awareness about drug abuse and holding seminars uh, on that topic. She was a pastor's wife for 41 years so far. It's pretty, it comes with its own challenges. Um, if you ask my wife, she'll tell you. But probably the most remarkable thing, uh, or, you know, when I think about my mom's biography, is she had three sons in the 1980s, okay? And if you had a kid in the 80s, I've heard some stories, all right? This is... Very wild time, all right, and it's led to a daughter being born in 1990 in our house, actually. So I don't know if those two things are related, but a home birth before it was trendy, okay. This is my mom, and uh, she's a very inspiring woman who has taught me one of the most valuable lessons about being a disciple of Christ, and I want to share that with you today. But first, I'd like to read you the story from Mark chapter 7, so... Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Mark chapter 7 and verse 24. Jesus left that place and he went up to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house. He didn't want anyone to know that he was there, yet he couldn't keep his presence a secret. In fact... As soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive a demon out of her daughter. Jesus replied, First let the children eat all they want, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Happy Mother's Day, by the way. Okay, Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found her child lying on the bed. And the demon had gone. Amen. Have a seat. Approaching uh, halfway through the Gospel of Mark, it's always good to pause and reflect, and I just want to encourage you, if there's been anything that you've been struck by or learning so far, 
as uh, week in and week out to write it down and, and, and wrestle through it and, and challenge yourself to live more consistently with some of these topics that have been coming up. I know for me, all the way going back to chapter 1, as, and I can remember just reading about Jesus standing on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, calling his disciples, starting to think like, what, what is Mark going to teach me about discipleship? And how is this going to develop as the story progresses? Um, and so I'm constantly looking at these stories as to like, what is Jesus responding to or frustrated by? And, and we can see like two sides of the same coin. Uh, there are all kinds of interactions that Jesus has with people that it's like they're speaking two different languages. It's like their, their priorities and what they're trying to do is completely different than what he's trying to do. But then there are also people where Jesus interacts with them and it isn't frustrating. He commends them. He actually points out that what they're doing and what they're saying is, is, is helpful and, and consistent with what his heart has for this world. And so we're looking for both of those. Of course, we want to evaluate and think, is there anything that's similar to me about the people who are frustrating to Jesus? And that even at times, like in chapter 3, right there at the beginning, you remember he was angry with these people, you know, he looked in anger, I, or, or is there anything that I can do to look like the people who he commends and says, look at this person, this is good. As we continue to develop as disciples of Jesus, these are kind of the ways that, uh, at least one thread that I like to look at these, how, when these stories are developing in the Gospel of Mark. Part of uh, just sort of my thinking in general, and, and you can ask any of my friends about this, this is something that sort of comes up in just sort of an awkward, wooden way, is like this phrase that comes out of Romans chapter 12, the patterns of this world. And I'm always thinking about these patterns because I know that this is a famous verse, you know, a lot of us memorized it growing up, but I haven't had a lot of just frank discussions about what are those patterns? Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world. What are some of those? Can we discern them? Can we point them out and say, I don't know, that pattern is on probation because it seems kind of like a pattern of this world. I'm not sure if it's compatible with the kingdom or not. And just have a fruitful conversation about this. That's, think twice before you go on a road trip with me, okay? That's, <laughs> yeah, my wife's worst nightmare. So um, a pattern of this world, they're constantly being like, brought up on the comings and goings of these stories. And I want to know, like, is there something I can see and, and, and that through the renewal of our minds, we can live out the transformation that God has for us in this world. I want to be consistent with Jesus and the patterns that he puts before us and the ones that he points out. And so uh, we can start to see some of these patterns challenged through the, the narrative of the stories developed here. It's not that Mark is just arbitrarily writing history. It is true. It is historical. These stories did happen. But he wrote them with an intent and a reason to point out some of these patterns that are dysfunctional and worldly. And one of the ones that just is very prevalent, and even today, we saw last week as we cracked open chapter 7, Three quarters of this chapter has been dedicated to this pattern of, of overemphasizing external things and valuing that over internal transformation. Anytime we start to overemphasize on an external um, 
something that's outwardly and physical and disregard the internal reality that that's supposed to correspond with, we'll start to see just abounding dysfunction. And, and in no place that I can think of is more dysfunctional than in religion and faith itself. This is what Jesus is running into with this group of people that are called the Pharisees. They are, are challenging him about out, just clearly outward appearance stuff. Why don't your disciples wash their hands? This gets dysfunctional. You know, I can just pare it down in, in two real simple ways really quick. You start to become, if, if this is symptomatic of your lifestyle, you start to become legalistic. Of course, all of the things that we're trying to like wash away and not look like and, and pretend to be, all of these things uh, are threatening because we're responding to threats in our life. So it feels good. It feels like control to sort of, you know, just scrub this part of my story and delete that part of me and make it look like this is, this, I am a, a good, solid Christian where maybe I'm not even in any way regarding the deeper parts of my soul and spirit or in any way pursuing God uh, or my relationship with God, that's, that's how we become legalists. And of course, this is why some of the, the interactions that they have with Jesus, it's just not even on the same planet as him. Je of course, Jesus, a holy man like you, we know how this works on an external level. We know how this works. You would never eat with that type of person. That looks bad. Oh, of course, Jesus, we know that you would never associate or have disciples, one who's a zealot or, or, or one who's a tax collector. That doesn't make sense. Of course, Jesus, you would never touch that person or talk to this person or, or, or interact with that person. That is out of, that's out of bounds. And I think that this conversation is important because if we overemphasize on external and disregard the the internal spiritual, art, spiritual formation, we will then start to see more and more despair. And if you think that this doesn't have anything to do with modern context, I mean, just look no further than the conversations around how church services go. I mean, it's got to have a certain look and a certain sound and a certain light, and it's got to feel a certain way or else God wasn't really there. Or maybe he even was, and then you walk away and, and it was just external and nothing happened. Nothing changed, and, and you walk away feeling like, what is wrong with me? I've been doing this for so long. All the while, maybe disregarding something that actually really matters. Jesus is constantly confronting this pattern, this worldly pattern. Because this pattern is designed to divide. It's designed to bring chaos into the inner parts of our world. It's designed to trick us into thinking that we are something that we're not. We are somewhere that we're not. And constantly tells us, oh, I know what makes God happy. I don't even need to talk to God about it anymore. It's these things. It's this way of doing things. Has it been a while since you really started to take a long, hard look in the mirror about what's actually going on under the hood? Because Mark, in this next story, twists the knife even more. And instead of just having a story of confronting like someone who's valuing external things, he gives us the contrast of somebody who has almost every single external element stacked against her. 
I never played euchre until I moved to West Michigan. <laughs> Let's see if I get this right. She's been dealt a farmer's hand, but she goes alone. And in the kingdom of heaven, <laughs> and in the kingdom of heaven, you can do, you can trump, or whatever, you can do it. Okay. You, <laughs> that was close. All right. Think about this. So Jesus, here's the story. He leaves this confrontational moment in the Galilee with the religious uh, Pharisees. And he walks 40 miles north into modern-day Lebanon, out across the borders of Israel, into Gentile territory, a place with great biblical significance. If you know the story of Elijah and the widow that he meets with the oil and the flour, I mean, this is that same place. In, in Josephus, one... Uh, 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 Jewish historian states that though in the time of Christ, this was one of the bitterest enemies of Israel. So Jesus walks 40 miles to this place, goes into a home, tries to keep it a secret, doesn't, and has this interaction with this woman. So let me just sort of reiterate a little bit of how the cards are stacked against her in their worldview. In the religious modest worldview of the Jewish world of that time and even in, in our modern time, a woman talking to a man, just strike number one, this is a woman. This is just not an interaction that is normal. We, we can forget this in our modern context, but this is not something that should happen uh, in regular Jewish life, a woman talking to a man. This is a big deal. A lot of stuff is hard for a woman in their context. A lot of this just seems kind of out there. Um, so this is an outsider moment. Number two, Greek. It says she's a Greek. This does not mean that she's from Greece. It actually says she is from Syrian Phoenicia. That's just a de designation as opposed to the Phoenicia in Africa. So this is the northern Phoenicia. She's Phoenician. Greek Phoenician meaning more of uh, her religion. She's in, affiliated with the Roman, Greek, Hellenistic worldview, the pantheon of these guys. This is where she's coming from. She's from a totally different religious background, from a totally different race, and a totally different uh, hindered gender moment. And she comes before Jesus. Now what happens next? What do you guys think of that line that Jesus said to her? Um, she drops this bomb. I have a daughter who has not just issues. This, this is Mark triggering, uh, using triggering language. She has an unclean spirit. She, she, it's an impure spirit or a demon that is tormenting this little girl. This bomb gets dropped and Jesus responds with, It sort of just seems not like Jesus. Whatever it sounds, a little weird, right? Like it, you normally, wouldn't he just say, "Okay, no problem. Let me just do. Let me heal." And you know, John three sixteen or whatever. You know, he'll say like that's. <laughs> there is a spectrum of interpretation here. Let me just give you a taste of each of the, of the, the flavors here. Um, on the one hand, there is um, a tradition that reads that this is Jesus. Um, saying what is expected of, of his current cultural context. He's saying what they should have said. And from what we know of Jesus, he, he would say it in sort of a backwards way to try to trick them and to say, obviously, that's not true. I'm sympathetic to this reading 
Though, I, I can't really stand on that very, I wasn't, I mean, it would be a lot better if, if it said in parentheses, and then Jesus looked at the Pharisee, or, and then he looked at his disciples and said, it's not right to give the bread of the children to the dogs, right, you know, and then did it, any, right, like this is sort of a, a way that sometimes the writers will cue us into cultural stuff, but that's not there. Another reading um, is that this is Jesus sort of indicating a theological point um, that kind of echoes Romans 1.16 to the Jew first and then the Gentile. And he's just trying to say, you know, like, I have only come, you know, come for the children of Israel. If you add in some of the ways Matthew tells this story. And, and so, and I don't know what you want to do with that. I mean, it, it's... Not to sound too unfair, but I have the microphone. Okay, so <laughs> if this was your perspective, maybe it just seems a little strange that he would walk 40 miles to a place, a woman who's desperate, and then say, my hands are tied. I didn't come to <laughs> all this way to serve you, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile, and especially given the fact that only one chapter ago, we were in the garrison. In Gentile territory with a Gentile demon-possessed person where he then heals this person. He doesn't say anything about to the Jew first, the Gentile to that guy. So which is it? Maybe that's a little more complicated of a, of a reading for me. A modern take on this seems to be coming a little more popular is that this was just a slip-up of Jesus being a racist. He just misogynistic, right? Like this moment where he just says a racial slur to this woman, and then it just shows kind of the time that they were in. Of course, there are many difficulties with this reading uh, of that. One is this is a sin, right? And so if Jesus is sinning, it just ruins a lot of things for us. Uh, we're all in a lot of trouble. And so think about that. And... I don't know what the lesson would even be there. Like, don't get too close to your heroes because they're always going to, you know, they're always going <laughs> to let you down. Jesus stubbed his toe and whoops, it slipped. He's actually a racist. And this whole time, um, maybe, probably not, okay, that's where I'm going to say, no, please, no. I have been living in a, a, a paradigm here of, about that I would just like to present to you about this statement. Um, what if it's a parable? Now you might say then, this is a very, this would be too short for parables. We're used to the long parables, right? And, but not in Mark. Mark has some very short parables. We've already seen one. If you want to plunder a house, you must bind up the strong men first. That's a parabolic statement. It's just one line. I hate to do this, but even, even, even if you have your Bibles open still, look at chapter 8, verse 16. Just looking for it, I never like to do because I don't want to steal the thunder of a future sermon. Okay, so whoever you are, I'm sorry if this is you. It's okay to repeat ourselves, but um, what's he say? Beware of the, of the leaven of the Pharisee and of Herod. Now, clearly this is a parabolic statement because they did not even know what he's talking about. I mean, look at the next line. Oh, uh, you know, what's he talking about? We didn't bring any bread? or what? I, We're not allowed to borrow leaven from the Pharisees anymore? I was going to ask him for a cup of sugar later, and now, you know, what, what is he talking? And Jesus looks at them, he's like, why are you talking about bread? Now look at what he says after this. This is very important. Do you not understand? 
Do you have eyes but do not see and ears but do not hear? Now this comes in stark contrast to in chapter 4 when we had the parable of the sower and the seed where Jesus said to his disciples, the secret of the kingdom of heaven has been revealed to you, but to those on the outside, I will speak in riddles and parables so that though they see, they will not perceive. Though they hear, they will not understand. What a big plot twist to find that <laughs> only four chapters later, the disciples themselves fit that paradigm of though they see, they do not perceive. Mark is a pretty dramatic writer, okay. And of course, this causes us a lot of questions to be thinking, what are ways that we can think and what are some patterns that we can have in our minds that dull our senses to being able to see and understand what Jesus is doing, what God is doing in this world? Now, why do I say this in contrast to this story right now? Because I'm, I noticed in verse 24, 25, when, when we are first introduced to this woman, this is going to sound a little nerdy, but I can't think of a better way of saying it. There is a verb of perception. As soon as she heard she went to him. Now, you might think this is a mountain out of a molehill, so test and approve. But in the context of the, of the seeing and perceiving theme in this letter, you better believe I'm going to pick up on any little interaction where somebody has perception of who Jesus is. Especially when in all rights, this person should be an outsider. Those who are on the outside, I will speak to in parables and we'll see. He speaks to her a word that essentially means there are some people who belong at the table and some people who don't. There are some people who are insiders and some people who are outsiders, right? And she responds with perception. She, she responds with how he's, uh, with, uh, in turn, she, she responds back to him. Now, this is a technical point here, but no, this word for dog is not the word that they would use for a racial slur. Like in English, we have a dog swear word, right? And this, they have that in their language as well. This word is actually not that. He is not being racist. He is not going all this way to tell her that his hands are tied and he's unable to do anything for her. This is a, is a moment of speaking a parable to see and to confirm her perception about who he is. And she responds to this in a remarkable way. What Jesus is doing is he's bringing his disciples across borders, across lines, across uh, boundaries that have been set up by patterns of this world that are seeking to divide and he's tearing them down and saying actually I'm standing upon a long tradition one that goes all the way back to Abraham the first person to be referenced as a Hebrew which means in that language an outsider and the outsider is one that God promised in Genesis 18 all nations are going to be blessed through you Jesus stands upon this tradition that all nations are going to be blessed. Of course he's going to take this across uh, boundaries and borders. Of course, because the world is going to tell us, no, 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 no. Those boundaries exist for a reason. Those people are out. These people are in. Those people belong. These people don't. There's no hope for that person anymore. But Jesus said, actually, the people that you think are on the outside aren't as out as you think they are. There is hope for them. There will be people who will respond in faith that you might never would have given a second chance to. 
This is her response to him. Outsiders aren't as outside as you think, right? Even the crumbs can go to the dog. Or in the words of Lloyd Christmas from Dumb and Dumber, she says, so you're telling me there's a chance. There is a chance. This is an important story to show that that we can get caught up into thinking that people are too far gone. And maybe there's somebody in your life that you think there's no way that they're ever going to be able to make it, to respond in faith to God. Um, And today maybe Jesus would want to encourage you and say, that is not true. There's always hope. As we see this story and this woman of this story, I, I, I just like to point out four things that I find commendable of, uh, that Jesus responds to. And these four things could help encourage us in our discipleship and following Christ as well. Number one, if you're taking notes, she comes to Jesus in a humble posture. There's a phrase here that is uh, noted from her and, and two other people so far in the story. It started back to that Gentile, demon-possessed person in the cemetery. And then the next time we see this phrase is with the woman who came to grab Jesus' tassel because she had been uh, bleeding for 12 years, alienated from her community of uh, faith for over a decade. They all are referencing the same thing. They fell at his feet. Now, I'm all about having a positive, like, self-talk, looking in the mirror and, like, telling myself the promises of God and who I am in Christ and, like, reaffirming my identity. That's great. But there's a danger in, in, in how we interact with some of that stuff in our current cultural context where we are inundated with self-help. This is how to be the best you type Christian-flavored stuff, especially in our just narcissistic time where we can then turn turn our relationship to God into this weapon that's about us and confirming and denying certain things, we then start to look and sound a little bit like Satan in the temptation story of Jesus in the desert, saying things like, well, if this is true, why haven't you done or why won't you do what I want you to do? If you really are the son of God, if I really am, then this is, uh, this is how we confirm that. And we we can't easily slip into something that does the opposite of the affirmation that the New Testament wants to give to us. Or put it in a more of a pithy statement, don't let your destiny detract from your desperation. Don't let your destiny take away your desperation because that is a place where a disciple of Jesus doesn't graduate from. At the feet of Jesus, saying, okay, I know that that you love me. I'm trying to receive that, but I am never going to leave your feet saying, in a humble posture, I am desperate for you. Like all of these people, the the oppressed man in the cemetery, the woman who's just grabbing the corner of his garment, we are falling at Jesus' feet again and again saying, (laughs) where would I be without you? Don't let your destiny detract from your desperation. In a world that constantly seeks autonomy, in a world that constantly tries to tell us to do things on your own, in Christianity, the whole time, the story is, I can't do this on my own. I can't do this on my own. Lord, I need thee. 
Second thing I noticed about her, um, Dave Drew kind of pointed me to this in a, in a way, uh, the resident pastor here is showing me uh, in sort of the Greek way that Jesus responds to her. Uh, in English it says, for such a reply, you may go, right? Sort of sounds like the way nobody talks, okay? <laughs> I text you later and you're like, oh, for such a reply, here's $5 or whatever. It just doesn't sound natural. Uh, so sometimes it's good to just sort of look at the wooden way to just translate this. And here's what it sounds like in Greek. Because of this word, you may go. What word? Of course, you could just, you know, translate that as the whole thing, their whole interaction. But notice how she on her knees says to him, Lord. This is the only person in the Gospel of Mark who refers to Jesus as Lord. I think it's a notable point to make. There are a lot of things in my life that are constantly asking me, begging me to, to tell them they are my Lord. Constantly seeking my loyalty and, and my dedication are things like the way accolades work and, and, and just if I pledge my loyalty to this pattern and plan of, of, of achieving and accomplishing this much, of course then people will then like, uh, you know, love me more or, or respect me more or whatever. Of course there are things like vanity in our world that's constantly talking to us and saying, if you have this, buy this, look this way and accrue this amount of wealth or whatever, you'll then have more value and people will love you and, and just, just, just bend a knee to me and to my plan about how this is supposed to work. Of course, pleasure. We have a, a God that's constantly telling us, you will have joy and satisfaction if you just bend your knee to me and do what I want you to do. This will work, I promise. All of these things, uh, and, and the list goes on about loyalty that's just, uh, that, we can, that we can give to idols and gods of this world. But what a powerful testimony. This woman, we don't know her name. We don't know anything that she accomplished in her culture or in her family or who she really was. We know one thing about her, that she knelt before Jesus and called him Lord. And nobody else in, in, in the narrative of Mark does this. What a legacy. Would it be enough for you to be known by, for one thing? And maybe nobody else in your family or nobody else in your friends or worldview is saying that Jesus is my Lord. That this would be you. The one thing people remember. That they knew somebody who said, I have no Christ but King. I have no King but Christ. I have no King but Christ. In the words of Fanny Crosby. The third thing that I notice here is a little more practical. After Jesus affirms what she said and says, go, your daughter will be healed, guess what she does? She goes. She walks away. And every single step that she takes is a step of faith. The word was spoken and it's like she says, kind of, you remember Mary and that story in Luke where she says, may it be unto me as you have said, and walks away. Is there a word that's been spoken over you and the people that are around you that you know this is, this is for me and, and, and you haven't yet taken a step of faith to confirm that? Like what if you just, it's just true. The word that Jesus said, it is finished. Your sins are forgiven. The rest of the world is not going to confirm this for you. 
Of course they're going to say it's not finished. Of course they're going to say, no, 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 their sins are not forgiven. They've got to pay for this. And maybe a step of faith, like this woman just walking and saying, I am just going to trust that this is true and take one step after another until I see the fullness of this word uh, revealed in my life. And, and if there's a person that you need to forgive, or, or, or even if it's yourself, to take a step of faith and to say, I am going to receive that forgiveness, and I am going to act that that's true and stand upon the word, the powerful word. Of Jesus. What has he said about your family, about your marriage, about the people that are around you that you can stand upon and say, I am going to take a step of faith and confirm that with how I live? What would the world critique of us if this became a big part of our life? I mean, isn't the big critique from the world that though they, though they, uh, Praise Jesus with their lips, they deny him with, his, with their lifestyle? Is that Brandon Manning? Uh, what if our lifestyle didn't deny what we praise Jesus for with our lips? I think it would be a very powerful time for us to rise up and to take steps of faith and believe Jesus even now. Okay. The fourth thing that I want to notice, okay, so first of humble posture um, she speaks out the truth of who Jesus is, and she walks in faith upon that. And so last thing I'd like to say, and if the band's nearby, you can kind of reveal yourselves. Um, <laughs> the fourth thing is this. And this goes all the way back to what I was thinking about about my mom. This woman reveals to us an essential lesson about how to be a disciple and, and what a disciple means. A follower of Jesus does not follow Jesus to an end in and of itself for themselves. Uh, we are not disciples of Jesus for ourselves. We are not blessed just for ourselves. We follow Jesus because Jesus shows us how important it is to, to give up our our lives for someone in need. And this story is about a mom who will go to great lengths to make sure that her daughter, who is being oppressed, is free. I know that this is something that I can go back to time and time again about my mom, is, is if I'm ever in trouble, I know that she has my back. One time in high school, I was in a soccer game and the parking lot was getting antagonized by another player and a friend of mine who didn't even go to our school, Jordan DeVries, if you best of you can remember him, he he beat this guy up, okay, he doesn't even go to our school and he, you know, he defended me and I am in the principal's office on Monday getting told I'm going to be suspended because somebody's got to pay and that other guy who doesn't even go to our school, we don't know how to track him down or whatever, so it's you. What am I going to say? I'm sitting in front of the principal and in front of the athletic director. I'm like, okay, well, I mean, yeah. My mom somehow found out about this and swings the door open like a lawyer. <laughs> My client will answer no more of your questions. And or would it like, 
I promise you, I have felt that so many times with her just to say, Dan, I have, I have your back, and I would be willing to go to bat for you. And isn't that true about this mom? And isn't that just such a picture of the gospel where Jesus himself would be willing to say for anybody who is oppressed, for anybody who is in a place uh, where they can't get out and get unstuck, I will do anything. I will do anything to set you free. To make sure that you're healthy and flourishing and where, you, where you're supposed to be. And if that's not the mark of a good disciple, I don't know what is. And so with all these things, I'd like to invite you to prayer and that we can think through them together and let the Holy Spirit do his work. Father in heaven, if there's any of us here who have ears to hear and eyes to see, let us see that maybe we've been living into an external reality a little too much and neglecting our internal relationship with you. And if that, if that person's here, maybe just say internally, my heart is open. If there's any of us who have... It could say it's been a while since I genuinely knelt before you in a humble posture and said, here's my biggest deal right now. The biggest thing on my heart, I'm going to surrender it to you. Because I have no king but you, Lord. If there's steps of faith that you're putting before our minds right now, give us the courage and the boldness to be able to walk inconsistency with that as we trust in you. And thank you, Jesus, for always having our back and for giving your life to make sure that we can be set free just like this daughter who was set free.